This is Iron Sports 95.9, 106.9. And I'm honored to have legendary broadcaster Jay Billis on the line. Jay, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports today. Well, Ira, my friend, it's great to be with you. Legendary, you gotta, you gotta get a better vocabulary. You, you've known me too long to to know that's not true. Well, Jay, we went to law school together, and I remember. I think the probably the biggest challenge you've had. I know you've done so much in terms of broadcasting basketball, but at one point we had a skit or whatever they would call it in, in law school, and you actually had to play me, which is probably the biggest challenge of your life to actually play me in a skit. Well, my my. Uh thespian talent uh, shown through. I thought I captured the essence of Ira Kaufman as well as any actor could have. Well, it was, it was like this game show to tell the truth, and people had to say who was who was Ira Kaufman. People thought you did a better job than me as being myself, so that was... <laughs> I give you a compliment on that one, but uh, we're honored to have you. You know, The past uh, year, we've had Fran Dunphy, who uh, played with Coach Dunphy, who coached with uh, Coach K, and, then, and, and also uh, they played with him. Uh, throughout this army tour where they traveled around the world. And also, Ian O'Connor wrote the book on Coach K. But you actually were like the key rec- one of the key recruits of the key class that went to, when people didn't know who Coach K was, you said, I'm going to go all the way from California to North Carolina to play for this guy. Yeah, it's interesting, Ira. When I was being recruited out of uh, Los Angeles in the uh, early 80s, uh, when Coach K first called me, I had never heard of him. And uh, he, he hadn't had any great success. He was just a, a year or two into his time at Duke. Uh, but I had, a, I had a really difficult relationship with my high school coach. So for me, choosing where to play was less about what school I went to and totally about what coach I played for. And, uh, and Coach K, as I said, was the least well-known, least successful of the guys that recruited me and the guys I came down to. But he was the one I, I just connected with the most and liked the best. And I guess, I guess I showed some good judgment there because he turned out to be pretty good at his job, and it turned out to be one of the most, uh, if not the most, non-family, the the most meaningful non-family relationship I've ever had. And then you stayed connected to the program when I knew you in law school. You were coaching with the team, and you saw him from a perspective as a player, but then as a coach and working with him. And over the years, it, it's it's difficult. You watch these coaches; it's really hard to stay on top a long time. I mean, they have peaks and valleys. For someone like him to stay on top and to adapt, it's just amazing. Yeah, I think, Ira, the, the, the attribute that sticks out above the others that are amazing to me is that Coach K in his 42 years at Duke never lost his enthusiasm for the day-to-day grind of the job. And like most people, whether they're coaches or lawyers or doctors or whatever, uh, I think people as they, they age, you tend to get tired of the day-to-day stuff. And that, that's what makes the difference is are, are you, you know, do you treat it with the same enthusiasm and the same passion, all those words that we cavalierly throw around. And I think, you know, Coach K did that for all those years. And I think at age 75, you know, he was seeing that, you know, maybe it was going to become a little bit more difficult and it was just time. But until, until the very end, uh, I, I think he did the job in large measure the same way uh, that he did early on. He wasn't as active in practice. Like he used to jump into drills when, uh, when I was playing, you know, at, at age seven, he's not going to do that. He's smart enough to know that, <laughs> but, but the day to day stuff, uh, r- really there was very little difference in how he did the job from age 35 to age 75. I think people were surprised at the Duke Carolina game where they lost at home. The final one where the, the whole, the brotherhood game, as they say, 
uh, when everybody came back. And then he came out and he was saying, well, that's an embarrassment. I'm sorry for that. And they're like, oh, well, that might have been the right wrong thing to say. But that was him. I mean, he's a fiery guy. And that was like he was upset that his team lost at home. I wasn't – I don't know. I, that, I still haven't wrapped my head around that one, Ira. Like, I don't think that is who he is. Um, and I think if he had that one back, he wouldn't have said that. Um, I, I do think that the enormity of, of the last game, his last game in Cameron, all the pregame pageantry that the school put on in his honor, I think it was a little much even for him, honestly. And so I, I don't think – usually – like, there's never been a time uh, in in the 40 years I've known him where I felt like um, he misspoke. And that was probably the only time, honestly, that, uh, um, you know, I, I know after every loss he doesn't, he doesn't like accepting losses, but he's always been really good at it and always been incredibly gracious. I, I, don't, think, I don't think he meant to, to come off the way he did and meant to throw it on the players the way he did. I, I've not, I've, it's funny, I've not talked to him about it. Maybe I should. But, but my guess is if, if you had him uh, uh, under oath, he would say, I'd like to have that one back. <laughs> well, everybody's uh, allowed to have a mulligan every now and then. But uh, I, I brought you on the show also to talk. I know you've been a critic of the NCAA, and you use the term hypocrisy a lot, and you've been using it. You've been consistent with your term of hypocrisy for a lot of things they do. And, and I guess if I looked at a few, you know, came 20 years ago when they didn't have cell phones or whatever and said someone like Steve Alford is going to get suspended for two games because he posed in a calendar for a sorority for a charity, which he didn't get paid for, or someone is going to get suspended because they gave tad, got tattoos for some jerseys they gave. And then we turn to now where players are literally saying, well, I don't, if you're not going to pay me a half a million dollars, I'm going to go to another school. I mean, there's been a mark of change in the last couple of years. But you know, you said you've been saying for a long time the NCAA is not controlling this. It's, it's been hypocritical from day one about this, and this is what they've been left with. Yeah, Ira, amateurism has never made any person a, a better player, a, a better athlete, a better student, a better person, a better husband or wife. Um, none of it. Amateurism has been a sham from the beginning. And it's a vestige of, of old England where the, the moneyed elites just simply did not want to compete against the common man. And it was exclusionary. <laughs> and it's the same thing now. And so now that the Supreme Court has ruled and basically amateurism is dead, you know, the NCAA is still trying to control what athletes can earn or accept. And, you know, they've, they've moved the goalpost to use a sports metaphor to, um, you know, now it's employment. They don't want the players to be employees of the university. Well, that's not going to work either. Absent congressional intervention, uh, schools are going to be signing players to contracts. And what, what the NCAA has done is they've sort of ignored publicly and with their rhetoric, ignored the fact that they're running a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry off of college campuses. And it was ludicrous to believe that the players weren't going to ask at some point for their fair share. And, uh, and, you know, they say, we're getting sued left and right. Well, quit violating federal antitrust law and you won't get sued anymore. And uh, there's, one, one quick way, there's one quick way to end all these lawsuits is take all the restrictions off of players and you won't have to worry about it anymore. And they continually lost. I mean, I've, I've, they had probably, the, you know, from the fact that when they lost that restricted earnings, when they had people probably on this minutia, but there was assistant coaches that could earn. They limited how much they could make. It was pretty stupid to have it in the first place that you make the assistant coaches. And then they lost that, had to pay the assistant coaches that back all that money. And then they continually, I mean, it's, ama- it's, it's hard to find a case where this, the NC actually won in court. 
Well, yeah, but on some of the stuff you're talking about, but 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 on the amateurism front, the NCAA had significant deference from the courts, and it was primarily over a 1984 ruling called the Board of Regents case, which I know you're familiar with, and and that was the that was the case that really shifted the plates in college sports. That case was similar to the the Alston case, which is about players, an antitrust case about players, um, you know, getting more. But in 1984, the schools sued the NCAA. The NCAA used to tell these schools how often they could be on television. They were controlling everything because they thought gate receipts were, were you know, the be-all and end-all. And now the schools sued, and they got to cut their own media rights deals, and that's when revenue exploded through the roof. But there was some language in that case that, that, that I always believed was dicta, which, you know, wasn't binding. But, but the courts over the years took that ruling by, by saying amateurism was a core principle of the NCAA. And they got a lot of deference on the, on the amateurism front in limiting players. But that went away really in the O'Bannon case and uh, in the Alston case in the lower court. And then the Supreme Court just eviscerated it. Um, so it, it's kind of open season on the NCAA for, you know, they, they're not going to be able to limit players anymore the way they have. But they still think that they can. And the, the funny thing is now, you know, they're, they're begging Congress to come in and give them an antitrust exemption so they can they can have, uh, you know, all they can have all these state laws preempted and uh, and they can continue to do what they've been doing with congressional approval. And I just don't think it's going to happen in the short run. And as Congress sees that the business is going to keep rolling along, you might have some coaches complaining. But they're going to keep rolling along, and the money is going to keep flowing in. I think Congress is going to be reluctant to step in. So we have name, image, and like this now, but you're actually saying you might see actual, as you said, the contracts with the schools to the players instead of going through this whole, what they call really a sham now about name, image, and likeness on a lot of these deals. But the point is that actually players would then sign a, a contract with a school to play there. Yeah, I think that's what we're going to see, and it, it, it was it would be better for the schools, and I think they're starting to realize that they'd have some cost certainty, they, they'd have better retention of their talent. Uh, so you know, it strains the mind to think that you could walk into a player's living room and, and right now and say, "We'll offer you a scholarship and a stipend," and they sign on the bottom line, on the dotted line, and and that goes really orderly, and you couldn't go in there with a contract and say, "Here's what we're willing to offer you." And if they say to another school, well, they've offered this, will you, will you offer more? Um, you know, with players, the NCAA calls that a bidding war. With coaches, they call it business. <laughs> and with any other employee, they call it business. Um, so we have those issues now. They just haven't dealt with it on the player front, and the coaches don't like it. But I hate to report it to the coaches. When you make $10 million a year, um, you're going to have to work in a different way sometimes. And business has changed. Nobody said it was going to stay this way forever. And, uh, and I don't think you'll see anybody quit over it. Um, you know, like I, I haven't seen Nick Saban turn in his resignation or Tom Izzo and these others. Uh, so, you know, the business is going to keep rolling along just fine. It's just the players get to participate now and the coaches uh, are having a hard time wrapping their heads around it. And then in conjunction with the NIL and payment is the whole transfer portal. And it was surprising to a lot of people that players weren't allowed to transfer. I mean, if I, I mean, you might know me that I went to Duke law school my first year, I went to Penn my second and Duke my third. So I didn't really have any restrictions for my transferring per se, but I guess for, for college players for years and years, they weren't allowed to do what I did or I couldn't actually go to, you know, they couldn't play when they transferred, but now that's been thrown out the window also. And now coaches are even, I think more upset about that than they are the NIL situation. 
Yeah, and it's all, you know, in a way, a selfish thing. They'll say, hey, it's better for the players to stay in one place, fight through adversity, blah, 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 which which is very self-serving. I'm not saying some of them don't believe it, uh, but it kind of goes to the George Costanza thing. It's not a lie if you believe it. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, what what people don't, what, what most people don't understand is that the transfer restriction, they used to call it a year in residence, where you, if you transfer from one institution to another, you had to sit out a year of competition. Um, that only applied to five sports, football, men's and women's basketball, baseball, and hockey. Every other sport you could transfer and be eligible right away. So the idea was based upon some principle uh, of, of betterment of the athlete or uh, the athlete needed time to adjust to the new school. makes no sense when you've got freshman eligibility. A high school player can come in. They don't need time to adjust. It's only the player transferring. It was a, it was a deterrent, and it was a restriction. It was a penalty. Uh, and the NCAA tried desperately to be able to link the uh, sitting out a year to academic betterment, and they couldn't find a link. Um, there, there was no difference in, in uh, graduation rates for transfers as for uh, non-transfers. So they couldn't link it to anything, and they realized they were getting killed in court over it uh, because it, it worked essentially as a non-compete provision in an employment contract. But that's another thing where coaches are complaining because good players are saying, hey, you know, I, I want more playing time. I want more shots. I want more snaps. Um, and, and they were leaving where they never had to deal with that problem before. But guess what? You got to deal with it now. And, I, you know, I don't see a lot of people out there saying boo-hoo. Nobody's turned their television set off during the college football playoff because uh, Jalen Hurts was playing for Oklahoma instead of Alabama. Um, nobody cares. It's, uh, this is business, and uh, they'd better get used to it. And then one of the things people, but you're just the wealth of knowledge about all these issues, but conference realignment and how, like, where we're going on the NCAAs. People, I think, don't realize that they think, who are big college basketball fans, don't realize that college football really calls the shots. These conferences that are merging, Oklahoma and Texas, uh, they moved to the SEC, not for basketball, but clearly just for football. And so you have that issue. And then from the NCAA perspective with the tournament, you have big schools, small schools, where you have the power conferences and these other smaller schools. So it's this, that's what makes it sort of difficult to understand where we're going to go with this and, like, when it all shakes down, like, is there going to be, is the SEC going to have just their own playoff and then they're going to choose a champion and have that champion and then play everybody else? Or what's going to happen with that? Yeah, I, I mean, that's anybody's guess. I think we're going to see college sports contract in a way where the big shots only play the big shots and they don't have to share their money with anybody. And as you know, Ira, um, you know, college sports is kind of bifurcated right now. You know, the NCAA does not control football in any way. They don't control a single dollar from football. Uh, all, all that money, the college football playoff is separate from the NCAA and, uh, and conference media deals are separate from the NCAA. So not $1 from football flows through the NCAA office in Indianapolis. The only thing the NCAA really uh, has control over is the NCAA basketball tournament, and that's over a billion dollars a year uh, in money throwing through the, uh, flowing through the association office. At some point, uh, the Power Five is probably going to take that away from the NCAA, and you'll see the NCAA just determining eligibility and, and smaller issues, which I think is what they – that's the only lane they should be in. Um, I do feel like the best thing to do is for the Power Five and some others to form their own entity and uh, have like-minded institutions playing against each other. Uh, it, it, it's another thing that strains the mind is you can have 354 teams in Division One basketball compete against each other, and we, we like to think we have a level playing field, and we don't. 
what I'd like to see is, is cut it down to 120, 150 like it is in football, and you'd have more talent spread out over fewer units. All the best players would want to play on that level, uh, and, and you would see a much better product. Um, but what it would do is, is you wouldn't have St. Peter's anymore uh, in the NCAA tournament. But I don't think that's driving the bus. And, uh, and for all these institutions that like to say, well, this is about academics and this is about mentoring young people and all that stuff, I don't see any of them rushing to Division Two, where that's exactly what they do. They all want to play the big money game. And uh, we just have an odd system here in America where, you know, we run a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry off of college campuses. Uh, nobody could have envisioned this 100 years ago. But uh, uh, 40 years ago, you could have envisioned it. And the NCAA chose to, you know, bury its head in the sand and pretend like all of this wasn't happening, like we were just running the Little League World Series for the kids to have a good time. And that's not what we're doing. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't have any problem with coaches making what they make or broadcasters making what they make or people paying what they're paying. Uh, I have a problem with limitations. Like, players should not be limited when – every other student can earn or accept whatever they want in the marketplace. That, that's just flat out wrong to the point of being immoral. Yeah, there's a whole point about the whole Reggie Bush situation. I mean, do we go back on some of these players that, I mean, it is sad to see how some of these players lost their careers. I remember when Curtis Enos got uh, suspended because he, someone gave him a suit for a, 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 a reward banquet or something where he got a suit for 100 bucks and they, and they, and they took it away. You'd like to see, you know, Reggie Bush get his uh, Heisman back, some other things like that. Um, let me turn to something else while I have you for a few minutes. We're talking to Jay Billis. Uh, is the game itself. Uh, a lot of complaints from a lot of people are about the three-point shooting, how three-point shooting has taken over the game, and is there a solution to maybe instead of having – now, if you have great three-point shooters, you watch Golden State, and they're shooting at 40%, 50% clip, then that's a great game. But if you're watching a team, and in the, even last night the Celtics, you know, four for 30, 26 at one point in the game, if you're seeing a lot of teams just miss shots, is, it, is the three-point shot itself like hurting basketball? No, no, it's improved it immeasurably. Um, I think it's a much better game now than it was, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, I think we've learned more about the, through the evolution of the game, learned how valuable that shot is. You know, just because a team in a particular game, you know, takes more threes than, than they would like or arguably should, and they miss them, doesn't mean that overall it's not, it's not great. It's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, you could say in, in the NFL, it's turned into more of a passing game than a running game. And the running back is no longer valued the same way it used to be. It's not the same kind of ground control game. Now it's more short passes. They don't have the vertical game as much as they used to. Um, you know, these teams are going to do what, what wins. And uh, so we could argue about baseball. Like they, they, they don't play hit and run anymore. And first and third defense, and all, it's all home runs or strikeouts. They're doing what wins. And if, if bunting one more, you'd see everybody bunt. It doesn't <laughs> win more. And the same thing's true in basketball. Like people our age, Ira, they lament the, the, the loss of the mid-range shot. Well, the mid-range shot is not as valuable as it used to be because there is a three-point shot, and you want to get to the, to the rim, which helps you get to the free-throw line, and you want to take open threes. Not contested threes, but open threes. That's proven to win. And there, there, there's a certain number that's a sweet spot that, that some teams have identified. It's not going to win you every game. But it's kind of like, you know, old-timers complaining about golf. They'll, they'll like, like a, a guy who won the 1970 U.S. Open will watch these guys play now and say, they don't know how to play anymore. 
you know, they don't carve the ball around. They don't, there's no creativity around the greens and all that stuff. They just bomb it out there, wedge it on the green and putt. They're like, yeah. And they shoot 63 and, and you do the same thing. If, if it were today's game, um, the games change and basketball has changed, but, but it, it is more enjoyable. I think now to watch than it ever been, it has ever been. And the players are better than they have ever been. If you drop today's teams, into the 90s, uh, today's teams would win. Um, the idea that, that, that the, the teams of the 90s, it's kind of like saying if you drop the, uh, you know, the Super Bowl champions of today in against the Green Bay Packers of the, the late 60s or against the, uh, the, the 49ers in the 80s, today's teams would pummel them. They would pummel them. And, uh, and just like the, the teams of the 80s would have beaten the teams of the 60s and the teams of the 60s would have beaten the teams of the 40s. The idea that, that, that there was uh, yesteryear was better is not true in any sport. You know, nobody ever says, well, Simone Biles, she could never have competed with Olga Corbett and Nadia Comaneci. Like, come on, man. <laughs> they, player, players today are better than they've ever been. Doesn't mean they're all better than Jordan, but generally they're better than they've ever been. Well, are there any tweaks, any rule changes that you think would improve the game? Is there something that you would think that would make it, more, as I said, more free-flowing or whatever? Is there anything major that you'd like to see? Uh, in the college game, I think the game needs to be called closer like it is in the NBA. And, uh, you know, the, the, I think sometimes the college game can devolve into more hand-to-hand combat uh, where there's too much physicality. And, and you know, generally, I think – uh, officials have um, let too much of that go. Some of the off-ball contact, some of the on-ball contact. Um, I, I do think we should go to quarters, but that's a commercial inventory issue. Uh, and I think we should uh, be more like the NBA in advancing the ball, uh, you know, late game, uh, things like that to make it more exciting. But the, there's nothing wrong with the game. I think it can be enhanced or improved, but we've got sort of a provincial attitude toward toward making changes and they're so slow uh but I, I think the more we make it like the nba rules or international rules the better the college game would be for it well jay i really appreciate it. i know you're extremely busy and you have so much passion i mean i remember you know you you know you talk about people coaching coach k keeping his passion up i mean we've had these conversations 25 years ago and you are just as passionate as then as you are now so it's now you're a as I said, legendary broadcaster, and you weren't a legend back then. But thank you again for coming on and talking about NCAA and everything with the college basketball. Always my pleasure, my friend. Thanks for having me, Ira.